they need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Thomas O'Neill White. Education and the racial wealth gap are the topics we are addressing today on Buffalo What's Next. With me right now is Just Equations National Policy Director Melody Baker. Melody, thank you for being here. Can you describe what the racial wealth gap is and what it looks like in the United States? Okay, so in the United States, um, as of 2019, uh, on average, the median household income for a white family was about $188,000. And on the opposite end, the median income for a black family is about $24,000. And that can range, you know, depending on the year, you know, go up or down. But the rule of thumb, it's about uh, white white, um, wealth is about 10 times greater than black wealth. What do we attribute that to? So that is easily attributed, I mean, you know, so we can't, it's not just um, slavery, you know, but it's all of the trickle down things that happened after being enslaved. So redlining, um, Jim Crow Crow laws, the the criminal justice system, um, access to high quality education, um, uh, just, so many different factors that that really continue to hold a lot of African Americans, black people back. And this is structural racism, is it Absolutely, not? yes. It's the type of racism that once it has been uh, a thing, it just goes on like a well-oiled machine. You really don't need people to enforce it, although we do have people enforce it. Um, a lot of it just kind of is able to happen on its own, which is interesting because, you know, people who are not familiar with redlining and discrimination within the workplace and, and Jim Crow laws and, and gerrymandering and how all of these things affected access to wealth, uh, they, it's easy for you to look at black folks and say, oh, you know, these, they're just lazy. You know, my, one of the most frustrating things I hear is um, people saying, well, my family came over here as immigrants, you know, with nothing but the shirt on their back, and they were able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But the difference is they came over with arms welcomed, um, and they did not have the same stigma associated with uh, black people that, um, that, that has, you know, to this day made it very, very difficult for black folks to advance. You know, as a country, we talk about the access to American dream, the American dream, and this, and that pursuit of happiness is an inalienable right. But yet, the one thing that we often leave out is how closely it's tied to wealth. Mm, mm, good point. Good point. Um, you 
are making it a sticking point to talk about education. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The, the, the importance of uh, universal education. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, and I also want to be careful because education is not a panacea. You know, it is not the silver bullet. It is not going to fix racism in our society, access, or the wealth gap, you know, completely, but it is something that will help. Um, so, part of my work as the National Policy Director is really to improve access to um, mathematics and high quality education for underserved populations and in this particular conversation uh, black students we know that black students um, nationally locally statewide they typically find themselves on the lowest indicator in terms of education success and educational outcomes um, so it is an area that I've tried to focus on in order to close that gap um, but if we just look at society, whether we're talking about ancient society or um, communities that do well, the one thing that they provide is, or the one thing that is, is promoted, is access to, to universal, high-quality education. Everyone has access to the same education system. Um, and it is undeniable that when you have a, a better education, people look at you differently. So education, again, it's not the, the panacea, but it is something that, 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 that unfortunately black folks have always had the short end, end of the stick on. And I'm gonna be careful, again, when I say education, because it's specific types of education. So at one point, black women, uh, they were a group that had were the fastest growing group to access education and you know there's what is this information that we have that 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 it's we call it shadow information so it's like you know i don't know if you've ever heard that phrase uh i'm sure if you grew up in a black home you've heard black people have to work twice as hard to get half as far mm -hmm. um and a lot of that has to do with just like really not knowing how to navigate the educational world so we've got more um, black people and specifically black women who are accessing education um, than ever however there are specific areas of education that has been inaccessible uh, and particularly mathematics people have no idea how math in and of itself from um, from pre-k all the way to college has been stereotypically geared toward a specific group white males um, traditionally, and of course, um, we look stereotypically at Asians as being, you know, really good in math. And just the idea and how we stereotype people, um, it makes young black girls think that, oh, I'm not that good in math. And it's just something that is inherent. It's a biological uh, thing that we just don't, you know, think in terms of numbers. We're more creative and, you know, we're, we're more into language and, and not necessarily into math, but, you know, that one ideology is why we have um, an overwhelming number of black women not pursuing STEM fields because we know that math in particular is the, um, is the pipeline into STEM and STEM fields on average are going to, um, offer 10 to 17 percent higher income than any other population as a matter of fact um about a few years ago in 2018 um the u.s department of labor they came out with the statistic about uh stem degrees and or not stem degrees stem jobs in 10 years or by 2029 stem jobs are going to double in growth compared to all other industries and that's health 
education, all of these other industries, because STEM is our key to being able to um, keep up with an advanced global society, compete economically, um, compete with in the digital world. In a time where there's a data revolution, we need people who are able to deal with large, massive amounts of data and effectively in order to uh, advance us as a society. So how do we get, how do we break down that barrier mm -hmm. and get uh, more African-American youth into these fields, into these STEM fields? Where does that start? So that's an excellent question. Um, so one of the barriers is definitely breaking down structural structural barriers. Um, we need to broaden math pathways. So most people are familiar with the algebra to calculus pipeline. So typically in the seventh grade, eighth grade, depending on whether or not your teacher places you on the accelerated path, that determines whether or not you're able to make it into calculus by your senior year of high school. Did you like? Did you did you do like accelerated math? And what was your math trajectory? <laughs> uh, math was not my strong strong suit. Yeah. So it's so interesting because when I compare, and so I'm finishing up my PhD in quantitative methods. When I compare the subject of math to like other subjects like English language arts or history, math is the most black and white. You know, people look at math and define it by being tethered to logic and reason. Uh, math is sequential in nature. So it's essentially like following a recipe per se. You know, it's a formula. You know, first you put in the eggs and then after the eggs, you put in the water and then you put in the oil and if you can follow that formula you can bake a cake essentially however somewhere along the line we have not adequately provided you know enough education and foundation in order for students to be able to follow these formulas and do well in math your story is something that I've heard specifically disproportionately among black uh, students I'm not good in math you know I've never been good in math but the students who have those stronger foundations with um, strong teachers that not just teach students you know in very important um, facility in the use of math in order for them to be successful but the teachers who say I think you're good at this you know you did a really good job at that math is that one subject that it's kind of black and white as opposed to like, you know, I write a lot. So in terms of writing, um, when I write, I have to write something that's going to be entertaining. It, it needs to be engaging. It has to be at a certain level where, you know, general audiences can understand it. And at the same time, it has to have a level of expertise to it. You know, my grammar needs to be okay. So I would look at something like writing, you know, subjective. Mm -hmm. I could think I produced a fantastic piece. You look at it and you say, I don't like it at all. You know, so writing is not like mathematics in the sense that math, the answer is either wrong or right. Yes. And it would also be something for a population who has been most discriminated against, something that they would be most attracted to. How do you look at a page? How do you, how does two plus two never equal four? Whereas, you know, if you're writing and you have a, a, a and you talk in an African-American standard dialect and you write the way that you talk, you know, someone who is used to a traditional European or English standard dialect, they'll say that this is, you know, uh, this is grammatically incorrect, or this doesn't make sense, or this isn't something that I'm culturally, you know, able to understand. Whereas math is black and white, so you think it would be something that more black students who have experienced discrimination would be 
um, would be, you know, attracted to. But because of our society and things that have been ingrained into us, um, black students are often, you know, not necessarily recommended for these accelerated paths that then take them to calculus, that then take them to um, uh, STEM careers. But to answer your question in terms of what can we do, we can broaden math pathways. And uh, there's a new math that's called data science. And across the country, California being one of the states, California, Virginia, many states are starting to implement data science because uh, it is the, it's a modern math. It is not uh, a math that you know we learned back in the 50s in order to build rocket ships. It, takes big data and it helps people to really understand it in a way to improve the human experience. And if black people, black students can have access to that math, especially in high school, it could potentially expose them to careers that they would not normally be interested in, like programming, um, data scientists, becoming data scientists, um, so many different careers that will lead them into lucrative, um, into lucrative opportunities. How do we integrate that into Buffalo Public Schools? Just thinking locally, Buffalo Public Schools, pretty underfunded. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of issues there. Um, but how do we, when we start at high school, this is, is a, this is a costly endeavor, right, to, to, to implement these programs. How do you see that happening, if, if it happens? So, number one, so I deal a lot with policy. Um, and the challenge in New York State and Buffalo in particular is uh, this red tape. So there is a challenge, of course, with the Regents' exam. You know, everyone <laughs> talks about the Regents' exam. And in order to have a course or a subject that is a viable subject that most students will take and essentially have teeth on it or it has value, credibility, it has to be tied to a Regents' exam. And the problem is, is that you then have to create a regents exam. So that has to go through the Board of Regents in order for us to actually effectively broaden math pathways and start offering data science as, I hate to use the word alternative course because it sounds like, you know, it's, it's a, a lower. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. But um, we have to have the state education department. Um, find a way to implement this and tie it to like a regents exam or deal with regents in and of itself but we also have to look at the standards other states have done it very effectively um like i mentioned earlier virginia california um oregon because they look at data science as a way into the future and honestly if buffalo does not uh, uh address you know these barriers and figure figure it out navigate around regents exams and you know standards that we don't even have to address like computer science or quantitative reasoning courses, we will continue to be behind. So, Especially when we're trying to turn this city into some sort of a tech hub. Absolutely, right? absolutely. So it's imperative to, to, to get this ball rolling. Absolutely, you have to be able to align education, the education needs um, of, of big tech industries with the skills that they're developing in students. And if you don't do that, especially starting with math, you're really closing off access to um, a much more broader, much more robust economy. Now, what we can do in Buffalo, um, they're doing it in New York City. They're piloting data science. Um, and there's uh, courses like Course Kata um, and different programs, national pushes that are providing teacher support and professional development to teachers in order to, so that they can actually teach a data science course. Um, but 
if people are not familiar with these modern math pathways, you know, our kids end up being left behind. Shifting gears for a second, mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about yourself. Okay. How did you get into this? What, what, <laughs> what, you're, you're very passionate. You're very passionate about this. How did you get there? That is a great question. So I got there. So the interesting thing is that I did not actually learn how to read until I was about, until I was in the third grade. Yes. Um, I was a, one of those, I was the youngest of three girls. Both of my parents were independent contractors. Uh, my older sisters, they did well. Um, and interestingly enough, I was a part of that uh, group of kids in the 80s during the desegregation of schools um, where federal force busing caused integration. So they built all of these schools. I went to Build Academy and these magnet schools that were boasting uh, new programs and, you know, great subjects that students can, uh, can, can take. Um, my parents moved from Texas to Buffalo, New York um, from a very rural community. Um, they weren't very familiar, but they heard about these magnet schools. They're like, let's get into these magnet schools. My two older sisters, um, prior to this federal force busing, uh, or the integration, this push, um, they attended black schools in our community and segregated black schools in our community. And I say that because, you know, a lot of people look at segregated schools and they say, um, these are bad for students and students don't learn well in segregated environments. And I think integration is great. Um, however, it's not that students don't learn well, is access to resources have historically been withheld from uh, communities of color and the most vulnerable populations. So it wasn't that the school was a lower school. It was that our playgrounds had had uh, monkey bars that were broken, that we received textbooks that were falling apart, uh, that some of the facilities in these black uh, communities didn't even work, like the, the lights. So it was access to resources. So when my parents said, that they wanted us to go to Build Academy. Uh, it wasn't because there was anything wrong with those schools where we were at. It was the resources. As a matter of fact, we had mostly, my sisters had mostly black teachers who my parents went to church with. They saw them at the grocery stores. They got, um, you know, a, a report from these teachers. My sister, Britt, this is how Britt is doing. This is how Gigi is doing and so forth. I was actually the first student to go to this um, brand new magnet school and Interestingly enough, because I did not have the best reading skills, no one figured it out until I was about uh, in the second grade. Um, my two older sisters, my parents um, always read to my sisters, but being the youngest, you hear all the stories. So I memorized all of the stories that my sister listened to um, or that my sisters read, so they had no idea that I couldn't read. Long story short, when you can't read, at that young of an age, doesn't matter what other skills you had. I was really good in math. My dad is a carpenter. He was a master's ca carpenter. I was really good in math. But I got grouped with this very low-performing group um, called, they, you know, back then, uh, our class was called the Rumps, essentially. So received very low um, support, skills, all of these things, as a matter of fact, there was this one teacher who ended up uh, teaching us. She was a teacher's aide, teaching us how to read. Um, our actual teacher went out on maternity leave, and uh, she taught us how to read in the third grade. It happened to be a black woman who was 
just there to discipline us, just to keep us in line. But she taught us how to read and it just completely opened up my eyes to education. And it showed me that that small experience or that experience that I had at a younger age, what could have happened if I just never had this black teacher's aide who took her lunches off to actually teach me how to read. And I realized at that point, especially once I got further into my um, college year or high school years, that education opens doors. You bring up an interesting point. You had a black teacher mm -hmm. teach you how to read. Talk to me about the importance of having a black teacher oh gr growing up. Oh my God, having a black teacher is probably one of the most impactful things that can happen to any student. Uh, just the research in and of itself says that if a student has a teacher that matches their race, they're in STEM four times more likely to um, complete a major in STEM and go on and do well. There's a huge uh, gap in STEM careers and STEM majors among black people, but we've been able to demonstrate one black teacher can essentially turn that trajectory around. What black teachers offer is this indirect mentor or model per se that most white people have, and they don't even realize it. You know, uh, a white male sitting in the classroom, the majority of the scientists and the people he sees on TV or in these um, tech, you know, savvy careers, they're, they're white. So he has this mentor that he sees that is, you know, indirectly influencing who he is and who he's going to become. A black person, not so much. You know, we have all of these black students who, or these black kids, if you ask the average black kid, male that is, what is he going to do? He's going to, you know, maybe play basketball or maybe play football or maybe become an entertainer. That's because those are who their models are. That's all they see. That's all they see. So if they don't have, um, uh, non-official mentors in these spaces that they're seeing that they can identify with it's very difficult for you to be able to see yourself in that path in addition to that um, black teachers they have an advantage they have they talk similarly you know children at a very young age they end up having to learn how to code switch and know not to use the same language that they use in their home to this day there's nothing more comfortable to me than being in a uh, my own environment and using double negatives. Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. that. <laughs> 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 and just being able to do that without anyone assuming that I have a lower education um, and just feel comfortable with that. But being able to get into an environment using, a, a, like I said, like a double negative and the teacher still believes that you're competent because he or she uses double negatives. And I think I might have an advantage. My husband um, it was a teacher. He's a principal now at Sweet Home, but his students all loved that when he taught um, social studies, history, he, all, he always taught it through the lens of, of, of a black educator. He infused black history, um, not as if it was separate from American history, but really talked about it and taught it in the sense that black history is American history. And when you as a student realize that and see yourself in this society that you've been for so long excluded from, you start to, to, to feel like this is somebody who I can become. This is something that I can do. And just going back to more um, black people in these tech positions, we need more black people in these tech positions to 
provide these, you know, non-official mentors for other black children to be able to mm -hmm. see. And just circling back to 514 mm -hmm. and just like the aftermath, um, what, are, what are your feelings? How are, how are we as like a region moving forward? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? So in order to be able to effectively move forward, we have to acknowledge, and I think that we've been doing that, that there is, we have an issue with race. So if you don't acknowledge it, you ignore it, and it just continues to happen. We have to see how it has affected every piece of society, how it is woven in the tapestry of who we are in Buffalo, New York, and Erie County, how the most segregated area or the, the, the poorest area happens to also be the, the blackest area, the most segregated area, the area with the um, d dilapidated housing um, in terms of access to jobs and what happened to the city of Buffalo, all the jobs that were essentially taken out when more black people started moving into the city. We have to acknowledge that things things happen and we cannot have another resurgence or renaissance and forget about black people. We have to invest in the black businesses. We have to do a much better job of providing high quality education and access to high quality childcare. That's a big piece of the puzzle. Without High quality childcare and that strong foundation early on, it's very difficult for students to be able to do well in school. But moving past uh, May 14th, it has to start with acknowledging um, that we have a racist past and also not just placing it upon black people to be able to fix this. Um, I'm always tickled when everyone say, okay, uh, when, when I hear these, these groups say, okay, we're going to get black people to teach us how to get past racism. And it's like, we didn't create this. Mm -hmm. This is yeah. something. This is, uh, uh, that's a you problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so bringing all these black people together to talk about racism is really kind of, it's, it's, it's not really addressing the issue. White people need to gather need to get together, acknowledge that there is an issue with racism, acknowledge how they play a part, whether or not they denied a black person a job, but say that this happened, I benefited from a racist society, and how do I reverse this? Because this is, again, not just a better feel good, it's not just the right thing to do, but this is how we advance as a global society. This is how we bring our economy up for everybody. Racism is not good for anyone, and until we start attaching the dollars to to the dollars to, to the racial wealth gap and and how that affects people um, we we won't get very far in Buffalo New York for example um, white people on average make about 50 percent more than or the, on average than, than than black families however so I think the median income is like twenty four thousand dollars for black families and it's like 55 for white families mm -hmm. um, on, at the national level, it's 188,000 for white families compared to about 24 black on uh, 24,000, which again is bad. But just looking in terms of black or Buffalo being, you know, anywhere from the third to the sixth most racist city in the country, it shows up with these median incomes. You know, so a $55,000 median income in 2022. I mean, or 2019. That's not good. Mm -hmm. So this is not just bad for black people and what they have to go through and what they have to experience, it's bad for everybody. Melody Baker is the National Policy Director for Just Equations. Melody, thank you for being with us. 
Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. This is Thomas O'Neill White. Stay with us for more Buffalo What's Next. Are you interested in the opportunity to learn from some of the most talented and energetic professionals in the industry? Buffalo Toronto Public Media is looking for interns for the fall semester for our education and outreach, social media and marketing, radio news, and digital video production teams. Go to wned.org slash careers to learn more. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Elderwood. From the anticipated to the unexpected, change is part of life. Elderwood's team of professionals combine compassion with a wide range of resources to help seniors and their families navigate life's transitions. Featuring independent living, assisted living, and subacute rehab, skilled nursing, and more. At Elderwood, we know the way. More at elderwood.com. Watch the WNED-PBS original production, Garden Wisdom for Western New York and Southern Ontario. Learn the secrets to planning, cultivating, and nurturing your own extraordinary garden using time-proven solutions and sustainable methods. Garden Wisdom, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York, an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy central and western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Hello, I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Today we are here with author, psychologist, and cultural content creator, Desiree Williams. Desiree, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, first, tell me, how are you doing? I'm doing really great, and I'm very, very excited to be here. This is my first time in a radio station. Uh-huh. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So you've written a book called Brilliant Brown Babies. Yes. Uh, What inspired you to write it? So I've been an educator for over 10 years now and specifically um, a school psychologist for almost 10 years. And so I've always had a passion for education, um, specifically the education of black and brown children and really helping them reach their highest educational potential. And when I had my son in 2016, I'm going to take the the headphones off. Uh, (laughs) Um, When I had my son in 2016, that mission really became personal. And so from the time that he was born, I was really intentional about finding resources, specifically books for him that would, um, you know, give him a a sense of self-pride and self-worth and self-love and his blackness. And at the time, this was 2016, 2017, I really 
couldn't find anything like that that was developmentally appropriate and fun and colorful and engaging. And so I wrote the book that I was looking for, for him. (laughs) If you can't find it, do it yourself. Exactly, exactly. And at that time, it was kind of just a passion project and something that I was doing for fun. I've always been creative and loved writing and drawing and things like that. So it was really just um, going to be a gift for him. Mm -hmm. And I started sharing it with uh, friends and family And they were so excited about it and really liked it. And it was actually um, my mother, who is Dr. Tanja Williams, and she's been a guest on the show in the past. Yes. Um, She was the one who really encouraged me to self-publish it and to make it widely distributed because she's like, you know, I think a lot of parents would really appreciate something like this. Certainly. I mean, we we talk a lot about representation, mm-hmm. representation in careers, in, in movies, in TV, um, in books even, mm-hmm. but not necessarily a lot has been, a lot of attention has been paid to representation for children's books, young, mm-hmm. young readers, um, those who are just starting to, to read, mm-hmm. uh, in order to, to see themselves. Why does, why does that matter? Why is that important? So positive representation in media in general is so important. And I will scream that to the rooftops in, for the rest of my life because I feel like it gives children an opportunity to see themselves in ways that they never thought possible, which could really be life-changing. And books specifically are so special because um, out of all the medias, I think they're the most accessible. Mm-hmm. So not everyone has you know, access to television or the internet or movies, but... I would dare to say everybody has access to books through libraries and schools and, you know, roaming a bookstore and those kinds of things. And so books are really special in that way. And they can really be a mirror for children to see themselves in ways they never thought possible. And also a window for children to look in on people that look different from them and see what their lives and communities are like, which is, I think, really powerful and life-changing as well. So it's not necessarily always for little black black or brown children. Mm -hmm. It really is universal for everyone to peek in and see how other people live or how other people exist. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really builds empathy in children and builds, um, you know, that curiosity is what really makes a well-developed society in the future. Trauma over current events affects everyone, Mm -hmm. um, certainly in different ways, but for children specifically, it's it's difficult and it presents itself in in manifests in odd ways mm-hmm. because children often lack the the words the words for the emotions that they might feel um how do you talk to kids about racism about hate mm-hmm um you know it really depends on their developmental stage and i would say for 
young children, research has shown that they really see race as through color. Mm -hmm. So up until age seven, children see themselves as brown or white. And that blackness is really that social construct that it's a little bit abstract for them to understand. Um, but if you can talk to your child about, you know, affirming their color as a brown person with, you know, curly hair or straight hair or, you know, whatever way that you look and to really say that's what's special about you and that's amazing and, you know children who look different than you are also amazing because they have these things that make them different and unique and really exposing your children to different ways of living and being and looking and but also as I was saying affirming what they look like and who they are as well um, your book does does some of that as well as teach and touch a little bit on history mm-hmm uh, you have some figures in your book who are wearing certain things. So children are being exposed to this. Is that, I'm assuming it's by design, uh, so that parents can start to have conversations? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I, it was important for me to, you know, input those little bits of historical figures without um, overtly um explaining them in that context because the book is really a book of affirmations to make children feel proud but you're right to start those conversations of um what does it mean what does red black and green mean or what why does that child have an x on his head who what does that x mean and you know that helps parents kind of start those conversations now you have an event coming up yes um tell me a little bit about that So this is something I am very, very excited about. Um, Alice Ever After Bookstore, right across from um, the Buffalo Zoo on Parkside, actually asked me to moderate an event that they're hosting um, with the anti-racist and anti-bias facilitator and author Britt Hawthorne. She wrote a book that is an anti-racist parenting guide. For parents and it offers discussion questions and worksheets and activities to help parents not only um, kind of self-assess their biases um, and any you know racism that they may have inherently picked up so that they can you know further help their children but also it offers um, you know how to talk to your children about some of the things that we were talking about about right. racism and hate and biases so it's a really really special book and i'm excited to moderate that event it'll be september 16th on zoom so if you have internet access um <laughs> please visit aliceeveraterbooks.com and register for that this really really exciting event This is Buffalo What's Next. We're speaking with local author Desiree Williams about talking to kids about the positivity of their culture uh, and inclusivity and other more sensitive, more difficult topics. Um, How has your book been received by parents? So there's been a really, really great positive response. And my mother and friends and family were right and that a lot of people were looking for books like this that i think you know since 2017 there's been kind of a boom of diversity in media and children's media specifically mm-hmm. um but at the time that it came out there were a lot of parents who were looking for 
um, those types of resources. So since Brilliant Brown Babies, I've self-published two additional books and a workbook um, that is affirming black and brown children as well. And I have a social media platform that's grown to almost 3,000 followers of just like a community of parents and educators who are looking for those social emotional um, resources that look at that development through the lens of diversity and inclusion. So there's been a lot of discussion uh, in school board meetings, in uh, online platforms, on Twitter uh, about critical race theory, Mm -hmm. about teaching African and unfiltered African-American history to students in school. Um, It's caused quite an uproar. Um, It seems to be a very divisive issue Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Um, There is concern uh, that teaching critical race theory, teaching um, about black and brown children Mm -hmm. and teaching them their history, their unfiltered history, um, would cause white children to feel badly about themselves. Uh, what what would you say to the parents who are against teaching this because they feel that you're going to make their kids feel mm-hmm. feel badly about themselves? So, black history is American history. It's everyone's history, and I think it's important to teach it in a way that is unfiltered in order to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself. Um, What I would say for parents who are concerned about their children feeling shameful of things that their ancestors may have done is to, you know, discuss those feelings of shame. Because if you're feeling shameful, then you don't identify with, you know, some of those bad things that your ancestors have done. And that helps you propel change for the future. Um, But I think it's so important that we discuss those things and we have those conversations. And for parents who maybe are not, you know, able or don't know how to have those conversations, we live in a digital age with so many resources um, that can allow parents to help facilitate those conversations with their children, but to erase um, critical race theory or black history is just not the answer and I think I would say to those parents think about the black child in that class or black children in classes for decades that have had to only see their history through the eyes of oppression through slavery and civil rights which are you know very important topics to talk about right but I think it's also important for black children and white children to know about all of the amazing contributions that black people have made to society globally. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the civilizations that were in Africa before slavery or to even know about things like, you know, that a black person created the traffic light or the elevator, (laughs) the potato chip. I think those things are important for all children to know. And it really fosters a sense of community and takes away that otherness that, um, 
perpetuates racism for future generations. I want to go back for a minute. You, you talked about sort of leaning into the guilt mm-hmm. that might be felt, leaning into, you know, the shamefulness mm-hmm. that might be felt. That's not, you know, when you hear about this in the media, they, the, the oftentimes they say, okay, you know, talk about you know, how the child is feeling, talk about, you know, why the child might be feeling mm-hmm. this, this shame. But I've never heard somebody say, lean into the guilt. <laughs> <laughs> like, embrace it. Yeah. <laughs> Here it is. Yeah. Uh, but there is understanding that comes from that, right? Mm-hmm. There's self-exploration that needs to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... As parents of children of all races, we want to keep our kids in a bubble, in their bubble of protection, protect their innocence for as long as you can. But the reality is that in the world that we live in, there are going to come up times where your child is going to be faced with adversity. Mm -hmm. And as a parent, it's your job to not brush it off and pretend like it's not there, that it doesn't exist, or, you know, in the case that we're talking about, to hide from it. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I think it's important that we talk we talk about those things. Why are you feeling like that? You know, let's really discuss it. And, you know, if as a parent you don't have the answers to, you know, address their feelings, that's okay too. Yeah. That's okay too. As a you know, go and get your resources and Seek out professional help, you know, reach out to your school mental health professionals or, um, like I said, you know, we have the World Wide Web at our fingertips. Reach out and get those resources. But to just hide from that, I think, is detrimental to society as a whole. Talk to me about the African-American experience in school and what what that looks like for uh, a black, a brown child. And then what that really looks like for a non-black or brown child? Mm-hmm. I think that would depend on the child, the school, the district, the, you know, the, the dynamics. Around, the dynamics, yeah. Yeah, but in general, um, our black children in schools, I think, historically have a distrust towards the school system because Mm -hmm. they aren't seeing themselves in the curriculum. I mean, until recently, you know, we've seen some progression, but until recently, we really haven't seen ourselves in the curriculum. Um, You know, you sit through history class and you learn about all the wars and, um, you know, the presidents and, (laughs) you know, all of these different things. And then when we talk about African-Americans, we talk about slavery. The first and, time, I actually, we had a professor on uh, a few weeks ago who said the first time when he was a child and he heard about black people was an encounter in a textbook that black people were slaves. Yes. Uh, he, there was yes. N- apparently nothing prior to that in exactly. his world or even in the textbook. Exactly. Yeah, that's that is 100 percent true. And I think even in world history, we don't talk a lot about what what went on in Africa before colonization and slavery um, and, you know, the positive contributions that black people have had to society. So I think because of that, 
if you're not seeing yourself in the curriculum, you're not connecting to it Mm -hmm. and you don't trust it. And it's, you know, it's really detrimental to a lot of our our African-American children in the education system. so at this time in history, this time, our present time, um, it's not only important to raise kids who are just simply not racist. We need to become anti-racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do that? How do you raise a child to be an anti-racist, whether you, no matter what color they might be? Mm-hmm. Um, they still need to be anti-racist. How do you raise a child to be that way? I think that's a great question. And I think a lot of parents probably have that question because they think to themselves, I'm, I'm not racist. I don't say racist things in the house. That's good enough. That's right, our, right. That's, that's like, okay. Baseline. We're all yeah. done now. <laughs> <laughs> and that modeling actually is really great. Um, but there's also a step further in buying you know, toys or dolls or games that feature children of other cultures and races, Um, having books that talk about other cultures and, you know, facilitating those discussions with your children, going to festivals that celebrate other cultures and races, even maybe going to a library in a neighborhood that's not yours, Mm -hmm. you know, exposing your children to things like that. Um, So really making sure that you come outside of your community to show your children other communities so that that otherness loses its its novelty and, you know, doesn't perpetuate that fear that eventually brings on racism. Right, right. In about two weeks, the school children of Western New York are going to head back to school. Um, It's back to school is a stressful time. Uh, for for everyone, students, mm-hmm. parents, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> um, but then we have the Buffalo school students. Mm-hmm. We have the Buffalo school students who are living on the east side, mm-hmm. whose bus may take them past the tops on mm-hmm. on Jefferson. I mean, that's revisited trauma on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How? What would you say to those children? How would you help them? How would you help their parents to be able to talk to them mm-hmm. about this this thing that they're about to encounter? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's something that I've, as a school psychologist who works in a Buffalo public school with a lot of children and families that were directly affected by, um, you know, the tragedy at Tops have been thinking about. Mm-hmm. And I think the best advice that I can give to parents that are probably struggling themselves as well, rightfully so, is to reach out to your mental health professionals. Every school in the Buffalo District has a psychologist, a social worker, a school counselor, um, a clinical mental health provider as well. And, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to those people and to get your children help and resources and you know also for yourself right to get you know any any um support that you might need as well it's important to understand that you know the the phrase is you can't fill from an empty well you can't mm-hmm. you know you need to as a parent or as a caregiver care for yourself first before you can 
even, you know, attempt to try to take care of yeah. someone else. Yeah. Um, how important is self-care going to be for people who are there or people who are still experiencing trauma? Extremely, extremely important. What you said just hit the nail on the head to take care of yourself, whatever that means for you. Um, you know, if you're somebody who likes to take walks, if you like to do yoga, you know, for a kid, it may be, you know, I need that little bit of extra time snuggling with mom or, mm -hmm. you know, but I think that is so imperative and getting through, not past, but through what has tragically affected our community. Absolutely. How important is it for adults to make space for the feelings of a child, for their child's feelings? I know, you know, we're all we're busy. We have things to do. School's starting back up. So, you know, now there's practices and yes. dances <laughs> and, and places to be. But if your child is struggling or if you notice that they might not be interested mm -hmm. in the things that they once were very active in, mm -hmm. um, how do you start that conversation? How do you make that space for them? I think it's extremely important that you make that space for your child. Um, and that could even be in the car on the way to school. Hey, how are things going? It doesn't have to be a formal, we need to talk, sit down situation all the time. Right. But um, just making sure that your child knows that you are interested in what's going on in their lives and interested in who their friends are and what they're watching and um, you know, what they're doing on their phones and paying attention to any behavioral changes that you might notice. Where am I? So I want to, at this point, introduce a special guest that we have here today. Um, like most working parents, um, childcare can sometimes be a challenge. Um, but with challenges, sometimes creative solutions are necessary. Yes. <laughs> uh, and one of the creative solutions that we came up with today was uh, to have Desiree bring her son with her. So Desiree, will you tell us who, is, who has joined you here? I have a very special guest here. This is my son, Cortland, and he is my co-creator and CEO of Brilliant Brown Babies. <laughs> so he's super excited to be here as well. Hi, Cortland. Hi. How are you today? Mm, good. Yeah. Can you tell me how old you are? Five. You're five. So you're going to be starting school? <laughs> yeah. Um, what grade are you going into? Um, first grade. First grade. That's, well, a little while ago for me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Slightly. Um, have you read your mom's book? Yes. You have. Can you tell me what you thought about it? Good. It was good? Yeah. So when you go into first grade... 
on the first day of school and, and your new classmate says, hey, do you know a good book? Um, will you say? What will you say? Um, Baby Mom Babies. Yeah. I baby don't. Um, I think my um, kids um, don't say Baby Mom Babies. Um, from like, um, uh, I've been in kindergarten. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so they don't, so they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. Well, that's okay. Sometimes people don't necessarily always want to want to talk about the things that we want to talk about, and that can be difficult. Um, so your mom has these fantastic plans. What would you? say to your classmates what tell them why it's important to to read they already know oh they already know okay <laughs> indeed uh, that would be fantastic but why should they read brilliant brown babies um they don't have any brown brown baby books they don't have so Hopefully, we'll be able to get some of them in schools and in libraries, and you know we'll be able to to have books for everyone else to read. Um, you were telling me earlier that you have a favorite thing that you study, that you look at, that you play with. What is that? Um, dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are fantastic. What makes dinosaurs so special for you? Um, cause they um, um they fight and they they um fight. Yeah, <laughs> they fight. <laughs> they eat things. Yeah. Yeah, I was saying that my my favorite was the T Rex, but you don't think that that should be my favorite one, right? T-Rex, um, T-Rex is kind of big, but Spinosaurus can beat T-Rex easily. Oh, it's because T-Rex has small arms, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I was wondering if you would be able to help me um, finish out my job here on the show today. Do you think you can maybe do that? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is big time announcer stuff that you're you're going to uh, to have to do. You ready? Yeah. Okay. What about those headphones? You can put on the headphones if you'd like, but then you might not be able to hear me. Can so you hear? Well. Okay. There you go. You ready? Okay. Yeah. So repeat after me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To listening. To Buffalo. To Buffalo. What's next? What's next? On WBFO. WEFO. <laughs> that is absolutely <laughs> close enough. Uh, Desiree, Cortland, thank you so, so much for joining us Hello. today. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Actually, we're saying goodbye at this point. Oh. So you could say goodbye. Bye. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to your event and to have you back on again. And Cortland, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. 
I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. We'll be back tomorrow here at WBFO, WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.